welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. All right, good. Hey, so I found this heart uh, in my safe. It was right next to passports, birth certificates, and other important things. Not, there's not, it's a small safe, so there's not a lot in there. But it's a wooden heart that I uh, got for Alex as a souvenir um, a few years before we had Ezra when we traveled to Israel. It's carved out of wood. It's Bethlehem, olive wood. And it clearly has significance for many reasons, just that alone, that it symbolizes our trip. It symbolizes um, our experience in Israel together when we got to tour the Holy Land and go to see the, the sites that, um, that were mentioned in the Bible. Um, but it also represents something so much more significant than just that trip. And uh, it's in a safe for a reason. Before we took the trip, many of you know this, Alex had a heart condition that significantly impacted her life and eventually it required surgery for her to correct the condition. And I've shared this before many times in the past, but um, four years prior to our trip to Israel, uh, Alex was regularly experiencing these heart problems that interrupted our daily life. It interrupted her to the point where she had to go to the hospital she saw specialists um, on a regular basis, a weekly basis. We had to deal with all sorts of issues. Uh, it created a lot of anxiety, fear. Um, it disabled her from sleeping well. And we were always calculating the proximity of where we were to a good hospital. So we rarely slept and we carried lots of stress for years because of Alex's heart condition. And we resolved in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts that we wouldn't travel because of the anxiety that it carried, how far was the nearest hospital? Driving up north to a family's house, I would map out the, you know, the closest hospitals to the freeway. And uh, the fear was overwhelming. And uh, in the summer of 2012, after the correct diagnosis of her heart condition, Alex had a procedure um, that fixed her heart. And at that time, and be- leading up to the surgery, uh, hearts meant something to us. We, we would see hearts and point them out as symbols, and then our friend uh, actually sewed together a bunch of felt hearts that we carried around as a reminder to pray for Alex's heart condition. It was a serious thing. And, and then we um, went to Israel, which was our first international trip after her heart procedure. And uh, Alex's heart surgery went well. We were both nervous to travel. Um, but on the trip, I found this, this wooden heart, and I knew I had to get it. Um, so it's a wooden heart, But to us, it serves us as a reminder of all the things that God did for us in that season. It's a reminder of God's healing power today. It's a reminder of his redemption in our stories. It's a reminder that there's freedom from anxiety and fear. It's a reminder that God is good and he's with us. Um, It's a reminder of that time he breathed life back into us. It's just a wooden heart, but it's more than a wooden heart. It's just a wooden heart, but it's a symbol for so much more. And today, I want to talk about a miracle that takes place in the book of John. So if you have a Bible, go to the book of John. We're going to look at chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, a miracle story. And John's gospel is a unique gospel. I love John. It's poetry. 
It's got allegory and metaphor and symbolism. There's all sorts of ways that John writes the Gospels, this Gospel that separates the rest of the Gospels. It's written from a different perspective. It's organized differently. The theme is different. The audience is different. And so if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, you'll see similarities to the structure and form and the pace, but John is just different. He organizes the first half around, um, the first 11 chapters around these things that he calls signs, and the Greek word is semia. It's his kind of word for miracle. And the sign is not this naked display of power. The sign for John um, are significant because they point to something bigger. Each sign, there's seven signs, and through, all throughout the book of John, it's structured with these numbers, seven being the sign of, of complete. Six represents the incomplete. And there's, there's, the first half is organized by these seven signs, and he starts listing out the signs, and then you have to keep track because he doesn't keep counting. But there's seven. The first is the water turned into wine. The second is the healing of the royal official's son. The third is the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. The fourth is the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth is walking on water. The sixth is the healing of the man born blind. And seven is raising Lazarus from the dead. Each sign gets more and more significant as it goes. And so we're gonna pick up and we're gonna read a story. And it's one of the signs. It's the first of the signs. And the purpose of the sign is to convince people that Jesus is the cross and the, uh, Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And these signs reveal God's glory. They're powerful in themselves. They represent something, but they're way bigger when you catch what's going on underneath the surface, what it's actually pointing to. Are you with me? So John chapter two, it's the first sign. And uh, it's, it's a miracle. We're gonna see a miracle, but it's something far bigger than just a miracle. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, at Cana in Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus had his disciples. And Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman? It's not like that. Why do you? <laughs> Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And like a good mother, his mother didn't listen. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them with, to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is a beautiful story, isn't it? I wanna talk about this miracle and then I wanna talk about what it's pointing to and I wanna talk about what it means for us today. Does that sound all right today? So that's the, the, the thing I have. So here it is. Jesus turns water into wine, which we'll get to in a second, but he begins his ministry 
with his disciples. Right before this, Jesus calls five disciples. He doesn't call all 12 yet. He calls five disciples to begin to follow him as a rabbi. They're his disciples. And he takes them off to the mountain to do a silent retreat and practice spiritual holiness. No, he doesn't. He goes straight to a wedding. Isn't that interesting? He goes to a wedding feast. And in that time, they lasted seven days. He doesn't go and fast with his disciples. He goes to a party with his disciples. How about that for Discipleship 101? A seven-day feast where you dance, you laugh, you sing, you tell jokes, you dress up, you eat good food, you drink lots and lots and lots of wine because it's a celebration of a union. A union in the Jewish context represents God because it's a echad, Two become one flesh. Two families, two stories becoming one. And I want to just imagine Jesus in this moment. Growing up, I didn't have this image of Jesus, but I think I want to help you re-understand who Jesus is. Jesus was probably the life of the party. We know that he had joy. He was probably the most joyful person there. Everyone wanted to hang out with him, from kids to the Pharisees. They all wanted to be around Jesus. Dallas Willard says that Jesus was relaxed non-anxious, unhurried. He liked to have a good meal. We saw that in the book of Luke. In the book of John, he likes to party all the time. And in fact, in this case, the water runs out, keep the party going. The wine runs out, keep the party going. That's a good, that's a good party trick. That's the kind of Messiah I want to follow. Are you with me? I mean, side note, despair and anxiety are the modern ailment of the millennial and younger. I just read an article in the New York Times, we are angrier than all previous generations. How amazing would it be if a few people in downtown Long Beach carried joy as the primary marker of the fruit of the Spirit? If we knew how to throw good parties. So Jesus shows up to a party, and there's a crisis. There's no more wine. And we think, okay, go to the 7-Eleven, grab some more wine. That's not what's going on. There's no more wine. In the middle of the celebration, in this week-long festival, the wine runs out. That's a crisis. That's a, that's a panic. That would have been terrible humiliation for the two families, and especially this young married couple. They were unable to provide enough wine for their guests. The reason for this dilemma most likely is that they were poor. And if they didn't provide enough wine for the seven days, they, didn't, they lacked the resource, they would have been embarrassed in the shame culture and humiliated. And it, there's evidence <coughs> that shows that some say that if that took place, if they ran out of wine, a groom was opened up to a lawsuit from the relatives. So if you have issues with the mother-in-law, you really have issues with your mother-in-law now. Legally, they could do something. And here's the thing. Mary comes to Jesus. Mary's probably a helper because it's in their, near their hometown, Cana. And, and Mary is probably helping with the wedding because a wedding, you have your family and your relatives and your, your, the entire village would show up for a party. And Mary comes to Jesus. She knows he has some type of power to do something. You think about that? She comes, she relies on Jesus's resourcefulness when there's a lack of resources. She comes to, uh, comes to Jesus and says, hey, they ran out of wine. She is interceding on behalf of the poor and the humiliated. She's compassionate. 
Jesus knows what it will mean for this couple and the shame that they will take on at the beginning of this, this marriage. And they, he refuses. He says, woman, which actually isn't like woman. It's an endearing phrase. And isn't it interesting that G- this is the first of Jesus' public ministry? This is the first, this is the beginning of his public ministry. This is the first miracle for John. This means something. The way the story begins tells you what kind of story you're telling once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. We know what we're talking about. This is saying something about Jesus. He's reluctant. He refuses. And I could just imagine he's standing there and he's like, woman, what do you want with me? My hour has not yet come. And she's like, do whatever he says, and walks off, right? It's holding a wine glass in case you're wondering. <laughs> Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. I was meditating on this passage this week, and I was like, oh my goodness. Right in the beginning of the Gospel of John is the secret to abundant life. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Mary, the miracle that will come forth will come forth from obedience, even in the absurdity of the request, which we'll get to in a second. So this first great event of public life in the gospel of John, John has significance and meaning and how he begins tells the story he's telling um, which will end with a great wedding according to Revelation. Mary is interceding. She's there. I love this. Just a side note. I just want to point this out. Mary is there in the beginning of Jesus' ministry and she's there at the end on the cross. He says, woman, in both places, And I just think it's significant that Mary has faith in her son. Do whatever he tells you. She has total confidence that she knows her boy loves the poor and the weak. She knows her boy can't help himself when it comes to taking on the shame of others so that others won't be humiliated. She saw it from the beginning. She prophesied about it in the birth story in the Gospel of Luke. Before he was even born, she knew God was going to do something for the poor and the humiliated and the lowly. That's within the story of Mary. And in perhaps the secret to the rest of the story, the secret to obedience or a secret to abundant life is found in this simple little remark that Mary gets, do whatever he tells you. In John chapter 10, verse 10, we get the mission statement of Jesus' ministry. And I just want to go there for a second because I think it's important for us to see John's understanding of Jesus' mission to the world. It says this um, in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus comes to give abundant life. The word have it to the full is overflowing Uh, extravagant, unnecessary amount. This is his mission statement. And so we get to this place where we want to see miracles. And if you want to see miracles and if you want this abundant life, then the secret is just to do what Jesus tells you to do daily. Obedience will lead you to a fruitful life. We'll see this for the rest of the book of John will be the story of disciples learning to abide in the way of Jesus, to obey the things that Jesus says to obey, that it's better for him to go because then the spirit will come. And when we have the spirit, then real fruit will come 
forth from our lives. We will not only remember the words, we will not only remember the teachings, we will have the power to obey him fully and show the world what he looks like on earth through our love for one another. This is the gospel of John. Just do whatever he says. Obedience is the secret to abundance. And then chapter uh, two, the story continues. Nearby stood six stone water jars. And he puts this in there as a note, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. So this is significant. Just pause for a moment. And if we're reading in the first century and we had some understanding of the Jewish religion, there's all sorts of things that are showing us something else is going on. Six, incomplete stones for ceremonial washing. There were laws in the Old Testament, 613 commands in the Old Testament. And then there were 1,500 customs and uh, oral traditions added on top of the 613 laws that you had to obey, including ceremonial washing when you would eat, when you would worship, when you would do life because sin was an issue, but more importantly for the first century uh, Jew, especially the Pharisees, the... uh, uncleanliness was an issue. So they applied all these regulations and customs and rituals to your life, which became a burden. And what you see are empty jars used for a religion that's dead. And I think it's fascinating. So the incomplete, empty jars of religion are sitting off to the corner as the feast is going on and they run out of wine. Why not use the empty rules of religion and put some water in it? Now, I have a pool at home for my boy um, who, who just turned two and we got him this pool and it took like 30 minutes to blow it up with air and I had like this big compressor thanks to my mom uh, for Father's Day. So this, that loud, <laughs> blows it up. And then it takes about 20 minutes to fill it full of water. But these Six jars have 20 to 30 gallons of water. Now, we don't have hoses back then. We have buckets from a well. So just imagine how frustrated you were as the servants filling. What did they think they were doing? They didn't know Jesus was going to perform a miracle. They're just following instructions in the absurdity of them. And this had to take some time. They didn't have power washing hoses. They have buckets from a well. Just think about that for a minute. So the part, it could take hours. And he fills them to the top. Fills them to the top. Six empty jars. It's John's poetic way of saying the old religion's not working anymore. I've got something better. And he takes it to the official who's overseeing the, the ceremony and, and the water turns into wine and it's an incredible amount of wine that's presented. So he saved the best until now. We'll get to that in a second. But it's an incredible amount of wine. It's an unnecessary amount of wine. Some scholars say, this is fascinating, that there would have been enough wine for every person there, including children, to have 1.5 gallons of wine each. Eight bottles of wine. That's extravagant, that's lavish, that's an unnecessary miracle. Jesus, be a little more prudent. This is your first miracle. Heal some sick people, cast out some demons. Don't keep the party going with a lot of really good wine unless you're trying to say something, unless something else is going on, unless it's revealing something about who God is, not just about the kind of wine we drink, not just about the miracle, but the revelation of God's goodness. The miracle wasn't dependent on the thirst of the party goers. It was dependent on the goodness of Jesus. 
How often are we coming to Jesus with this thirst and hungry hunger of scarcity and he's like got an ocean of provision behind him just waiting for us to be like, hey, I want in. I want you in, come in. And just overwhelm. I'm getting there too early. He turns water into wine. This poor couple is freed. I just love it because I love the humanity of it. The couple, they, are, they don't even know what Jesus does for them. They don't even know about the crisis. It's like the wedding planner and the mother-in-law, they're freaking out over here, smiling. Everything's cool, everything's cool. And Jesus just steps in with this extravagant gift for one couple to experience or not to experience the humiliation that would have come upon them. He takes it upon himself. What does that sound like? The cross? It sounds like the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? You see the character of God all over this little tiny story. But there's a sign. The party continues on. Jesus has the power to turn in water into wine. This is a really cool trick, but it's pointing to something bigger. What begins with scarcity ends with an abundance in leftovers. And what begins with a crisis, a panic, a moment of despair that can turn into shame turns into celebration. You see, first, if we're talking about kingdom culture, what you need to know is the kingdom is abundant. The kingdom of God is abundant. What's going on in this story? What's a sign that Jesus wants to bring to us today? A reminder of what life in heaven looks like on earth. It's full of abundant provision. I love what Katia said a couple weeks ago. Heaven is, heaven's economy is not in recession. Heaven's, the nature of the kingdom is expans, expansive. It's expanding. It's moving out. It's overflowing. It's to the brim and pouring over. The nature of the kingdom is that Jesus pulls us into the future reality. Hey guys, I know where the story ends. I'm gonna pull you into that reality. I'm gonna bring future kingdom on earth right here and now. I'm gonna teach you how to live in this mindset, in this worldview, so that wherever you go, you're not operating with scarcity. You're not operating as orphans. You're operating as royal sons and daughters. You're operating with there's more than enough to go around. You have two fish and five loaves. Let me get some leftovers for 5,000. You see, this is how the story unfolds. We keep thinking that we bring just a little bit. Remember what he said he could do with a mustard seed size of faith? Mustard seed size faith? Move mountains. Now just pause for a moment. What little you have, you're aware of. Am I right? This is how we live. We know what we lack. But do you know what you have access to in present reality? Are you living with a scarcity mindset in your everyday life? Are you living in fear and anxiety of not having enough? Or are you going to step into the reality that God wants to give you access, is already currently giving you access to these things? Now, abundant life doesn't mean possessions, which some of us think that's what it means. It means what matters most in eternity. You have heavenly resources at your fingertips. And John will say later on that, Jesus will say, if you ask for anything in my name, I'll give it to you. It glorifies my Father when I do this. He wants to train you to be a pe person of resource. 
He wants to train you as a follower to learn to ask for whatever you want in his name and for that to be given to you because you're gonna be trained in your asking. This is the end goal of what it means to follow Jesus, that we just live and abide in him. So we, we ask, we dream, we long for the things that he desires for us too. And then it's just this flow of the kingdom abundance wherever we go. How are we doing, church? Mm. I love that he takes a group of uneducated tax collectors and fishermen and turns them into world changers. The abundant mentality is not based on what you need, but based on the goodness of his revelation for you. You know, I think about this regularly and how this, so what's it pointing to? We have to wrap, wrap our minds around what does Jesus doing this miracle represent? It represents the glory of God. It represents the kind of God he is, that he lavishes his love upon us, that it's an abundant amount of love. It's an, an unnecessary amount. Isn't that good? Like, it's un, like, no, you, like we think you're being wasteful, but anyone that's in love knows you don't waste anything in love. I mean, for me, it's like the recognition, one of the things that this is pointing to is your distorted view of Jesus and God and how his kingdom really works. If you were like me and carried that disapproving father, God, that he's distant, he's uninterested, he's angry, the way you interact with the world, the way you operate in prayer, if you have a prayer life, is hindered by that distorted view. You don't really think he wants good things for you. You don't think he's interested in your life. You're trying to prove your worth, prove and validate that you're worthy of anything, let alone <clears throat> sit in this place of belovedness and sit in this place of, of extravagant love for no good reason type of, of father-son or father and daughter relationship. And when you finally get that, then you live with a lot more freedom and peace knowing that God is interested. God does desire. You don't have to walk up and go, oh, if you could, you would, you would, are you maybe. You can run to the arms of your father because you know he's just gonna embrace you and lavish you with unnecessary amounts of love. It's pointing to that kind of God. It's more than just water being turned into wine. It's changing our perspective. The second is the kingdom of God is like a party. I think that's a good one. The kingdom of God is like a really good party. Over and over again in all the gospels, Jesus, especially in the gospel of John, Jesus is at every festival and feast he could possibly be at. It's like if someone's in pain, you'll see Jesus is there. If someone's throwing a party, Jesus is also there. Church, when someone's in pain, you should be there. When someone's throwing a party, you should be there too. That wasn't good? <laughs> I thought that, I was giving some of you permission. Like, yeah, be a witness. <laughs> Maybe you missed the subtext of what I was getting at. Kingdom of God's like a party. One, one theologian says, for Jesus, feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, he also brought it into reality through his own feasting, unlike many theologians. He did not come preaching an ideology, promoting ideas or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom and he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. <laughs> Come on, that's good. <laughs> I 
I want to say something, but I just feel like our, our hospitality game is terrible lately. Like we got to get better at hospitality as the means to demonstrating the kingdom of God. What do do I mean that the party, church, we should be the best party throwers on the planet. Here's the symbolism of the party. You see, the church is to be a prophetic symbol, a wooden heart to something way bigger than just a group of people worshiping on Sunday. The church is the foretaste, the future that has come into reality. We are to be the living examples of heaven on earth. So we live with joy and peace and gentleness, not trying to strive after those characteristics, but as a result of a spirit-baptized life. We give generously, we share because we really believe we're family. We don't pursue our careers over, over each other. We don't pursue, pursue our passions. We covenant in meaningful relationships. That's a sign of what's coming. We throw parties and we celebrate and we worship and we sing and we feast and we pray and we fast and we heal the sick and we cast out demons. We preach the gospel. We share our faith. We are resilient disciples in the age of digital Babylon. And it's time for the church to represent the things of Jesus. And the kingdom of God is like a party. And you want to know what I see? is a bunch of people trying to survive culture. Despair, anxiety, loneliness, brokenness in the church. It's time to be church. Let Jesus heal those things. Walk it out in community. Forgive and be forgiven. And then represent the things of heaven wherever you go. It's more than just a miracle of wine. It's a symbol that the messianic age is underway. The new age has come. You see, this is, this is a fulfillment of Amos chapter nine. Check this out. I love this. Amos nine, it says, the days are coming. This is a prophecy about what would happen when the Messiah would come, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel, my people Israel back from exile, they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. This is what's promised. This is what we get to live into now, that there's new wine being poured out, the sign of the spirit and the kingdom being present on earth. And we are the recipients. We are the vessels of this new wine. Those stone jars are done. That's a once dead religion. There's a new way of life and it's overflowing. There's so much to go around. We can't help. We're gonna swim in the type of wine that Jesus wants to provide. But we live our lives with such scarcity and brokenness and worry and fear as if we're defeated. We don't live like we're gonna rebuild the ruined cities. We're gonna plant some vineyards and we're gonna build some gardens and we're gonna drink the wine and we're gonna eat the fruit and the nations will come to us and say there really is a God because the church is the sign of what's coming. The church is the sign. The church is the symbol of what's to come. Are we living in the reality of the kingdom come? That's what this whole series has been about. 
This whole series has been about to look at the reality of Jesus' message and life and learn to pattern our life in church around his way, his kingdom come, his reign on earth, the rule, what life would look like with him in charge of our personal lives, of our families, of our life at, on the job, of our neighborhoods. What does it look like to walk into places with the reign of Christ? That means first he's our king and we do whatever he tells us. And when you learn that, when you learn to pattern your life in joyful obedience to the king, abundance flows. Abundance will follow. We don't have to live with scarcity. There's more than enough. We don't have to live in fear. He has the final say. We can stand looking at death and say, you have no sting because it's been swallowed up in victory. I know how this story ends. I will dance again with my friend who died. So if we don't have anything to fear, if we have more than enough to go around, what are we waiting for? A Sunday to serve the city? Please. That's just a symbol of what we're after. Your heart always serving the city. That's what it means to be church. A couple of things I want to end with. <clears throat> um, I believe God wants to bring abundance to our church here and now. I want to speak for a moment, um, just prophetically. I just keep seeing it, I keep praying it, but I believe um, God's bringing about a new move, all right? And I think it's going to be uh, different than the past, and I've st studying revival, studying the most recent, you know, Jesus movement and revivals of the past, uh, there's always a catalyst, and it begins with personal renewal. It begins with individuals. You know, the Wales revival, the Welsh revival that took place started with 12 young people committing their life to purity. The Hebridean revival in Scotland started with two older women praying. The Wall Street revival uh, after the recession began with five guys in the Wall Street stock in a room in Wall Street praying for their nation. It always begins with a resilient remnant who choose to pattern their life around the move of God in that moment. Repentance, purity, holiness, hunger for the presence of God, worship. I believe God's bringing abundance. I believe he's gonna bring financial provision. I think he's gonna bless businesses. He's gonna bless communi our community. I see it happening, but it's if we're faithful to him and do whatever he says. Are you, so what, what does revival look like? Let me say this. It begins with you patterning your individual life after Jesus. Leaders, I, I, young leaders are always asking me, I, I talk to a lot of church planners every week. They're always like, okay, how do you get to where you get? How do you get to this place where your church is this size? Or how do you lead? And I'm like, read your Bible every day. Pray every day. Fast once a week. Just start there. And in 10 years, we'll see what happens. We'll see your preaching grow. We'll see your church grow. If you just do the things that Jesus tells you to do, simple daily things, you'll see this abundant life. I've seen it in my life. Just do the work and stay hungry and be obedient to his voice. So church, I'm gonna keep saying this because I want you to have your mind around this. Revival, renewal, awakening. These are the things we're after, a movement of God. We can't make that happen, but we can posture ourselves willing. We can humble ourselves and get hungry. We want to see a wine poured out, an abundance of it. It's got to start with uh, just do whatever he says. Amen? Amen. 
Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.